Kona Manner of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 58, November 2022. Shakespeare's Rhetoric, a conversation with Gideon Burton. Hello again, Paul Meyer here. First up, guess that accent. Last time I played this clip from the International Dialects of English Archive, Idea, and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. Well, I mean, I can live here now because I have a car and I can commute right. and I can go into town and I can't get me. And I have, as my own children will say, I have the best of both worlds. If you guessed Ireland, well done. It was Ideas Ireland 14, contributed by David Neville, our prolific senior editor. Thanks again, David. The subject, born 1940, lived her whole life in County Sligo, except for 10 years in Chicago in her late teens and 20s. She was 70 when David recorded her in 2010. For the whole fascinating recording and his excellent transcription of it, go to the Dialects and Accents tab on the menu bar of dialectsarchive.com and drill down to Ireland. Now, this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? And I have two children. Both of them are teenagers. Lately, I'm having a hard time handling with, two, handling with two children. But I'm happy they are nice and they grown up really well. Get the answer next time. And if you can't get enough of the accent quiz, there's a whole lot more of the same on idea itself. See Test Your Ear under the Special Collections tab at dialectsarchive.com. Thanks to all of you listening who have donated to IDEA. Click the Support IDEA link on the right-hand side of any page of dialectsarchive.com to help us keep the lights on. No amount is too small. Now, here's an amazing fact. If everyone who visits IDEA regularly, let's say 10 times a year or more, were to donate what they pay at Starbucks for their morning coffee, IDEA would be funded forever, in perpetuity. So if you are one of those regular visitors and have been procrastinating, why not pause this podcast and click that Support IDEA button now while it's on your mind. My guest this month is Gideon Burton, a professor in the English department at Brigham Young University in Salt Lake City, Utah. I've been a fan of his amazing website, Silver Rhetorici, the Forest of Rhetoric, for years and years, since he created it in 1996, in fact. I refer to it often in my e-book, Voicing Shakespeare. Hi, Professor Burton, Gideon. Welcome to In a Manner Speaking. Thank you very much. Glad to be with you. I love your Forest of Rhetoric, uh, the, the forest, the trees, the flowers, great, great metaphors. Uh, tell us about this love child of yours. The Forest of Rhetoric, and you know how and why you created it, and how we should use it. Well, I began my academic career at uh, Brigham Young University right about the same time as the advent of the internet, and I was immediately drawn to just playing with it. And I saw it uh, first of all as an opportunity to help me keep track of some terms that I would be teaching to my students as I taught them the history of rhetoric and rhetorical theory. And so I, I just learned some HTML coding and, and um, created the Forest of Rhetoric, Silver Rhetorici, and that had an unexpected influence. I didn't realize just how broad the audience was for a resource like this. And over the last uh, 25 years or so, 
I've had an enormous amount of feedback and interest in the site so that it has become now something that has been used not just by students of rhetoric, but by journalists and politicians and academics of many different stripes, homeschoolers, etc. I really was quite taken back by how many people were interested in the topic of rhetoric once I made it available. Give us a quick overview of how it, how the site is organized and, and how we should use it. Well, it's it's set up as a, a reference site, a bit of a, a primer in, in rhetoric. It's set up with a column on the left side using the metaphor of the forest. I have the trees, so major categories, uh, concepts like audience and decorum and other sort of major categories from the history of rhetoric are populated on the left side. There's a central viewing pane in the middle, which will be filled with whatever the definitions and examples are that one is looking for. And then there's a, a right panel, a right column, which is uh, what which I call the flowers of rhetoric, mm-hmm. which would be just a, a very long list of the many different figures of speech that are available arranged alphabetically. So people can uh, search their way through it uh, or or uh, browse their way through it. And it's, it's highly uh, hyperlinked so that uh, various figures of speech that are related to one another can easily be, be found through a few clicks. It's, mm-hmm. it's proven quite useful, even though it's a, a rather simple site in its overall architecture. How many flowers are there? I started to count, but lost track. There are hundreds. I would say that this is the sort of topic that lends itself to pedantry. Uh, where, you know, the academics will love to drill down into minutia that may be of, of little uh, consequence to, to most people. And there's a kind of seduction to uh, this sort of organizing of information. And I, I, I confess to have fallen prey to that from time to time. <laughs> yeah. Only a few of those flowers are vaguely recognizable to the ordinary person, I would say, right? Uh, yes, in terms of like having a, a label for them. But I would say on another level that many of them are familiar. It's just people don't realize that it's a pattern of, of speaking that yes. you can give a name to. Yes, yes. Uh, the, the overarching thing that appeals to me is that we as human beings seem to be addicted to patterns. We look for patterns and, and find them where they don't exist. And why is the patterning of reality so compelling an activity for us? Why is patterning so persuasive? Well, that's an awfully broad metaphysical question. I like it very much. <laughs> it is true that we are very much drawn to patterns, and specifically within language, it's it's our meaning-making mechanism, right? It, it, yeah. It's only by the convention of repetition that we even understand words to be words. By convention, a certain selection of phonemes put together, and voila, we have a word that we all use. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, it just goes up from there. We have um, patterns of phrasing and and uh, sentence making and paragraphing and so on. I've just picked out, you said, meaning making mechanism. <laughs> I love it. I mean, it's it's vivid, isn't it? Uh, alliteration is, is, is compelling in itself, the pattern of it. Oh, yes. And it really kind of ends up being a, a matter of uh, to which aspect of pattern do you want to pay attention to? Because yes. uh, alliteration is maybe a more obvious kind of repetition, the initial sounds uh, of successive words like that you might have drawn attention to the the rhythm of that same set of words which is another important pattern as well yeah all with all with first syllable stress meaning making mecca yeah yes right yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so what do you think the term rhetoric conjures up if you just gave that one word what what 
what would that term rhetoric conjure up for most people today, do you think? And, and how does that contrast with how the term has been regarded in previous centuries and millennia? Oh, well, it's, it's, a, it's a, a negative connotation immediately in the popular sense. Uh, rhetoric is what the other guy does, right? It's some kind of uh, manipulation of language or some kind of posturing or, or perhaps out-and-out fraud that's perpetrated by way of language. This is not at all new. I mean, this is the, the critique that Socrates had of, yes. of rhetoric way back in the day. It, it is certainly much alive today. And uh, I don't think that that's necessarily erroneous. I think it's it's very important that people have a sense that language is something that can be manipulated and and that our psychology is, is vulnerable to uh, manipulations through eloquence or bombast or mm-hmm. any kind of uh, verbal manipulation. It's a shame that eloquence has become a pejorative term also. I remember a mainstream journalist dismissing Obama's eloquence as a liability. Well, that is regrettable as as a student of eloquence and someone who is quite drawn to all of its magic and its possibilities, its aesthetic joys and its its practical importance. I certainly miss eloquence as being a kind of general value in society that we used to think in terms of statesmanship and public speaking being something that was really prized for a lot of reasons, uh, mostly having to do with the electronic media and, and, and digital culture. We we don't. We, we don't have the sustained attention that's required of uh, an audience listening to a long periodic sentence or, uh, you know, essentially a, a dramatic performance that, that uh, is not just something that can be turned into a soundbite or, or clicked yeah. away from. Yes, yes. It's regrettable. And and I and uh, other coaches of the spoken word have frequently been asked by politicians to uh, de-rhetoricize their speech, make it less patrician, more plebeian, perhaps, uh, mm. more down-to-earth, less ornate. <laughs> well, there there is a, you know, a, a, a sense of the importance of style not being overly elaborate. And uh, certainly from the 20th century forward, we have this idea of plainness of style. Well, actually, that that starts much earlier, actually. There's been a campaign away from the overly eloquent and towards plainer kinds of speaking that goes way back in time. It's not a bad thing, actually, because there is a great deal of wordiness and grandiloquence and bombast. and, And as a teacher of writing, I'm often eager to see my students learn how to pare down to the basics rather than try to sound as though they they know more than they do. On the other hand, I think it's well worth our while to understand what can be done with language and what may seem to be uh, perhaps something flowery might actually end up creating something very substantive in terms of the structure of, of the thinking behind a speech. I don't think that uh, rhetoric is merely something that's painted on but no. can really be foundational to one's one's thinking or the performance of one's ideas. Yeah, yeah. Where is the study of rhetoric located in today's academic curriculum? I know it occupied a much more central place in in a classical education. So where is it located today? That's a very good question. And the answer is that it, it's been somewhat uh, balkanized. It's been a bit broken up. Part of that is understandable. And part of that is perhaps a step backwards Students of of writing will study rhetoric. They're routinely taught things like the persuasive appeals of logos, pathos, and ethos. They're taught about audience, etc. But you often have an absence of the importance of the living voice 
uh, in the writing classroom and you'd have to go over to something like a public speaking course or mm. a course in drama yes. uh, to find those who are giving studied attention to what was given enormous attention in classical times and in the Renaissance, and that was delivery. It was so critical that it would seem very odd to someone of those former times to hear that someone was learning how to communicate without learning how to communicate aloud. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. By contrast, how did classical and Renaissance rhetoric play out in Shakespeare's time with the, the poets, the orators, the preachers? Was it central to oh, their yeah. education, and where did they find it? Very central to uh, Renaissance education, the classical works of Rome and Greece were, were the great preoccupation of the Renaissance humanists. And that began, of course, with the study of the language, particularly Latin, less so Greek. And as um, students learn language, they, they learn literature at the same time. They would be given model paragraphs from Cicero or Caesar and uh, have to parse it out. First, it was a matter of simply learning the, the grammar and the vocabulary of the Latin language. But this was not divided from careful attention to the rhetorical figures and the larger rhetorical strategies, which were often at work in those uh, classical exemplars. And those, those exemplars were often either dramatic works or they were works of oratory. And so they did have this very strong performative aspect to them. And, and really the study of rhetoric, even though it might have been a more literary enterprise in the Renaissance than it was in antiquity, it still had this very strong attention to the, the idea of a, a speaker trying to move a crowd through the spoken word. If we believe that the man from Stratford wrote Shakespeare's plays and had that grammar school education there in Stratford, how would rhetoric have figured in his grammar school education there? Oh, yes. Um, and, and his grammar school is still still there. If you visit Stratford-Pon-Avon, you can go in and actually see where... Uh, Little William had a little desk, and and uh, <laughs> he would have been dictated to uh, from his instructor a passage from one of the ancient writers. Uh, uh, Cicero really was a favorite. Some of his his speeches, like the Catiline speeches, etc., he would copy those out, and then they would do imitations, which was a very common strategy in that period, where they would take the original Latin passage and then be asked to transform that, uh, keeping the same form, but changing the content, mm -hmm. vice versa. So they might do a paraphrase, but they might also do something that is, is more trying to imitate the, the rhythm, the flow, the, the rhetorical force of a paragraph while changing the topic. So, for example, Cicero wrote a minor treatise on avarice, de avaritia, on greed, and they might be assigned to change that to a short essay on friendship. And so they would be asked to analyze the rhetorical moves of the original speaker writer, and then to try to follow that same pattern in creating a new piece that's based on um, the, the form, but, but supplying their own content. And this they would do over and over again. Nothing Absolutely nothing like that in today's education, is there? Well, that's true, and it's not true. Uh, I, there, there's some of us who have been and trying for years to to do more to introduce some of the classical pedagogy uh, back into today's curriculum, and there have been some modest successes with that. There have been efforts to to recover some of the early rhetorical exercises that uh, were common in Shakespeare's day or or in 
ancient Rome. I would have loved to have been exposed to that in my education. There was none of it, neither in my drama school, where I trained as an actor, nor at my any of my English courses at university. It's uh, I would have, I would have really loved, been challenged in that way. Yeah, that's a pity. It is really quite an energizing kind of pedagogical approach. For example, they have this concept called copia, which really it, it means abundance, like cornucopia, like our horn of plenty. Copiousness, yes. Yeah, but it wasn't just wordiness. It was the idea of playing with language in order to discover its various expressive possibilities. I mentioned imitation. They might imitate a prior author, but they wouldn't necessarily keep it to just the same length as as their model but they would try to exceed that and try to vary it as many ways as they possibly could they would be given a uh, an assignment oftentimes to argue two sides of a given question uh, one prompt that i read in a renaissance educational manual was to marry or not to marry and so they would argue two sides of that and see how many different ways they could express mm. those opposing ideas. It's highly likely that this is where we get the famous speech from, from Hamlet, Shakespeare's Hamlet, with a to be or not to be. Yes, yes, Very much an example of someone working out the possibilities of arguing two sides of a question and then producing this copia, this kind of abundance along the way. How many different ways can I think through this idea of should I take my life or should I keep my life? That yes. sort of thing. Yes. That really appeals to something very fundamental in me, that that idea. And I'm also in, a great fan of um, economy and brevity and so forth. I mean, I, I don't think the two things are in contradistinction, are they? Oh, no. And, and I mean, sometimes... Uh, we, we focus on the excesses and, and that, that can be problematic. E even Shakespeare, as much as I adore Shakespeare, he is, is definitely wordy by, by modern standards. Quite prolix at times. Prolix indeed. But uh, the art of rhetoric made as much about abbreviation as amplification. And, yes. and really it was more about discovering what would be the most forceful for any given rhetorical situation and sometimes less is more. Yeah. You and I promised ourselves that, that we would look at two of the most famous Shakespeare speeches that uh, are crammed with rhetoric, and that's uh, Julius Caesar, Act 3, Scene 2, when uh, Antony and Brutus, first Brutus and then Antony, get to speak at Caesar's funeral. So I'm going to play Brutus, you're going to play Antony. Just a reminder to the listener that... Uh, Brutus was one of the assassins, striking Caesar down for his supposed ambition for a crown, for kingship, while Antony is Caesar's staunchest defender, and they, they're addressing a, a crowd of ordinary Romans. If those of you listening would like to read along with Gideon and I in the text of these two speeches, and you aren't accessing this podcast from palmire.com, let me suggest that you stop this recording and go to my website, palmire.com, click other services on the menu bar, then click in a manner of speaking podcasts and select this episode number 58 and continue listening and reading from there. In fact, it's, it's always best to listen to my podcast from my website, both for the essential text and images that I add there and nowhere else and extra material provided there. Okay. So this is a good time to switch to palmire.com if you aren't there already. 
before we dive in, and I do Brutus and then you do Antony, Brutus speaks in prose and Antony speaks in verse. Uh, any theory on what Shakespeare was thinking in the, when he made those choices? That is curious, isn't it? Well, for one thing, we can't be entirely certain that that was intentional by the part on the part of Shakespeare. We don't know if that was simply the the compositor that chose to represent something by prose rather than breaking it out into verse. And so there's that. I, I think it's interesting sometimes as I teach Shakespeare that there seems to be uh, a lot of logic at times for something suddenly being inserted in prose and other times not. Prose in Shakespeare tends to come up when it's either a lower class character that's speaking or perhaps being spoken to. And that might be the reason why Brutus is doing this here, because he knows he's talking to the, the plebes, the, the, you know, the general lower class of Rome. And so he, he wants to sort of talk their language. Um, we'll get into this after you do your speaking. But, yes. but the uh, fact is he can't, he can't really hide from his highly uh, structured approach to uh, speaking, even if it's in prose. Yeah. I mean, in, in fact, Brutus is, is more highly wrought language in some ways than, than Antony's, and yet it's expressed, in, at least on, in most editions, as prose. Anyway, I'm going to read the speech. This is Brutus, Julius Caesar, Act 3, Scene 2, near the beginning of the scene before Antony comes on with the dead body of Caesar. And he says the famous words, Romans. Countrymen and lovers, hear me for my cause, and be silent that you may hear. Believe me for mine honour, and have respect to mine honour that you may believe. Censure me in your wisdom, and awake your senses that you may the better judge. If there be any in this assembly, any dear friend of Caesar's, to him I say that Brutus' love to Caesar was no less than his. If then that friend demand why Brutus rose against Caesar, this is my answer. Not that I loved Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. Had you rather Caesar were living and die all slaves than that Caesar were dead to live all free men? As Caesar loved me, I weep for him. As he was fortunate, I rejoice at it. As he was valiant, I honor him. But as he was ambitious, I slew him. There is tears for his love, joy for his fortune, honor for his valor, and death for his ambition. Who is here so base that would be a bondman? If any, speak. For him I have offended. Who is here so rude that would not be a Roman? If any, speak. For him I have offended. Who is here so vile that will not love his country? If any, speak. For him have I offended. I pause for a reply. Then none have I offended. I have done no more to Caesar than you shall do to Brutus. The question of his death is enrolled in the capital, his glory not extenuated, wherein he was worthy, nor his offences enforced, for which he suffered death. Here comes his body, mourned by Mark Antony, who, though he had no hand in his death, shall receive the benefit of his dying. 
a place in the commonwealth, as which of you shall not. With this I depart, that as I slew my best lover for the good of Rome, I have the same dagger for myself when it shall please my country to need my death. So there's Brutus who gets the enviable assignment of speaking first and then leaving. Perhaps that was a strategic error, I don't know. Your turn. Well spoken, by the way. I was really quite entranced. I know the speech well, and yet I was really caught up with it. Well done. Thanks. I enjoyed it. All right. Here's Mark Antony's reply. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred with their bones, so let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. If it were so, it was a grievous fault, and grievously hath Caesar answered it. Here, under leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus is an honorable man, so are they all, all honorable men, come I to speak in Caesar's funeral. He was my friend, faithful and just to me, but Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honorable man. He hath brought many captives home to Rome, whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. Did this in Caesar seem ambitious? When that the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept. Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honorable man. You all did see that on the Lupercal I thrice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and sure, he is an honorable man. I speak not to disprove what Brutus spoke, but here I am to speak what I do know. You all did love him once, not without cause. What cause withholds you then to mourn for him? O oh, judgment, thou art fled to brutish beasts, and men have lost their reason. Bear with me, my heart is in the coffin there with Caesar. And I must pause till it come back to me. Nice, beautiful clarity. Well, I'll return the compliment. Very well spoken. So Gideon, uh, it's, it's for you to lead us uh, in our exploration of these two speeches. Tell us about the forest, the trees and the flowers of rhetoric, to use your metaphor in these, in these two speeches. Sure. I love this pair of speeches because it's it's almost as though Shakespeare was uh, inviting us to a, a lesson in, in public speaking and in rhetorical situations. What we didn't read, as you and I were performing just now, uh, were all of the comments made by the public. And they really are, are rather amusing because you see how easily swayed the public is. First, they're completely all in on uh, Brutus's speech and everything he says seems completely reasonable, and they're ready to turn him into the next Caesar. And then, just as quickly, Mark Antony is able to sway them to his point of view using his speech. In the end, it might be a, a simple cautionary tale about getting the last word in, because Mark Antony does carry the day on that. Yes, and the conspirators are forced to flee Rome, I believe. Indeed. Uh, one of the things that's, that's remarkable about the speech by Brutus is that the very way that he speaks is structured to be very reassuring. And this we can see, or rather hear and feel, 
by the many uses of, of symmetry and sometimes a kind of antimetaboly or um, repetition and inversion. Right at the beginning of the speech where he says, hear me for my cause and be silent that you may hear. So you have that word here that begins and that ends that same sentence. And, and the name of that device classically is? Well, that one is called aponolepsis, where you have repetition at the beginning and the ending of the same verbal unit. And that aponolepsis is repeated in the next sentence, believe me for mine honor and have respect to mine honor that you may believe. So you have the word believe that encapsulates that whole thing. But this one also has... Let's see. Yeah, the word honor is repeated in the middle of that. So you have believe me for mine honor and respect to mine honor that you may believe. So if you catch that pattern, it's an A, B, B, A. Believe, honor, honor, believe. Now, when you have a set of these sorts of things coming one after another, there's a kind of certainty, a a confidence that, you know, this is a moment of of chaos in, in the country as you just have had the leader assassinated. And yet Brutus comes in and through the very form of his speaking, it's reassuring, almost as though the the actual words don't matter, that words do matter, but they matter more because they're encased in this very secure form of repetition and inversion. Heavily patterned, heavily patterned, very reassuring in its patternedness, yes? Yeah. Now, of course, Brutus faces a very delicate rhetorical situation because people know that he is among the conspirators that has just killed Julius Caesar just moments before. And so how does he save face? He's, the, the term here is ethos, his character or the credibility of his person is, is very much in jeopardy at this moment. It's a public relations nightmare. How is he going to manage that? Yes. Well, one of the ways he does this is, is a kind of indirection. One thing he refers to himself in the third person, which is a way of both countenancing something, but also distancing oneself from it at the same time. That's a way of kind of deflecting responsibility. The other way that he does this is by using a, a, a subjunctive approach, using the, you know, the realm of possibility. If there be any in this assembly, any dear friends of Caesar's, to him I say that Brutus' love to Caesar was no less than this. No less than his, I should mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. If that friend demand why Brutus... So it's all couched in, in a very fictional zone here. These are exactly the questions I have in mind, but he sort of put it at a distance by putting it in the realm of if this were to be the case. It's this <laughs> subjunctive mode. Yes, yes. And then the real, the killer line, of course, from his whole speech, the one that's so memorable, not that I loved Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. Yeah. Um, that, that's a classic example of antithesis, where you have opposing ideas, less and more, and then also encapsulates this sense of irony that he's trading on, that he dearly loves Caesar, but he actually loves Rome more. And so it becomes an invitation to have sympathy on the poor man, to have such an ethical conflict to face that, of course, we all love Caesar, but don't we all love Rome more? Yeah. I remember interviewing John Barton, you know, founder of the Royal Shakespeare Company, and his teaching to generations of actors in the Royal Shakespeare Company was to find the antitheses. They will carry the day for you if you... If you realize that less is balanced against more and Caesar against Rome in that sentence, revealing oh, yeah. that antithesis is is the key to the architecture of the argument. Oh, indeed. And and the public responds to that because we like to feel a sense of moral clarity that comes through clear oppositions. And uh, Brutus continues in that same vein 
through the, the next set of questions that he has. Had you rather Caesar were living and die all slaves than that Caesar were dead to live all free men? So you have this idea of living and dying is opposed, but but then we also have freedom and slaves idea. Yeah. We like series. We like to have things in parallel. And you can combine that with contrasts as he does in the next section of his speech. So he has a series of uh, conditions and then responses. As Caesar loved me, I weep for him. Cause and effect, condition response. And then another one, as he was fortunate, I rejoice in it. This only makes sense, right? As he was valiant, I honor him. This only makes sense, right? But as he was ambitious, I slew him. The fourth thing, though, is is not really of a piece with the others, is it? No, no. It's, It's a different thing to slay someone. And yet the grammatical structure there is so parallel that it seems like a very obvious, logical last step. He set up that pattern and we go along with the pattern on steps one, steps two, step three, so that when he gets to step four, it only seems natural or obvious. Well, of course, he's ambitious. Well, you got to slay him then, right? And then he doubles down on this in the next uh, sentence. There is tears for his love, the appropriate response to the first thing, joy for his fortune, appropriate response to the second thing, honor for his valor, appropriate response to the third thing, and death for his ambition appropriate response to the last thing yes yeah it's very clever the way that he creates that pattern in order to get the crowd to go along with it yes well both uh, brutus and antony are very good at using rhetorical questions of course a rhetorical question is a, a question that's used for effect not not truly to request information so brutus next says who's here so base that would be a bondman if any speak for him, have I offended? Okay, well, first of all, when you when you ask really obvious questions to a big crowd, no one's going to be that guy that wants to raise his hand and say, I don't know. I want to be a bondman. Right. <laughs> I want to be a slave. <laughs> so it's a sort of question that, of course, you have to go along with it. No one's going to speak up. And so he says, he asks that. And then he asks another question. I'm, who, I'm with some alliteration, base bondman. Who is here so base that would be a bondman? Very obviously good. no obviously nobody right right and th- in fact the b sounds thanks for pointing that out those are known as plosives and they kind of have this explosive feeling that the, often you can express rejection better if you put a b sound in front of it if you can so that yeah. works very well so we ask another question who is here so rude that would not be a roman again the alliteration rude and roman yeah rude and roman yeah and then another question, who is here so vile that will not love his country? Okay, now no one's going to answer that. So it's you're going to look like an idiot if you're not agreeing with all of these various <laughs> obvious questions. Yeah. Now, the other thing that's going on here with that series of questions is he's using a figure known as, as Anthropophora, which simply refers to asking and then answering your own questions. Is this an effective technique to use? Yes, it often is. So that's what he does. Who is here so base? Blah, blah, blah. If any speak for him, have I offended? Who is here so rude? Blah, blah, blah. If any speak for him, have I offended? Who is here so vile? Blah, blah, blah. If any speak for him, I have offended. Okay. So that sets up this larger rhythm and crowds like to feel that sense of rhythm. I feel like, okay, we're with him now and he's building to something. You can almost stamp your feet along with him, right? Right. I think I'll just skip down to maybe the end of his speech there where where he's departing 
and he says in a kind of grand gesture, as I slew my best lover for the good of Rome, I have the same dagger for myself when it shall please my country to need my death. All right, now that's a bit of dramatic bravura, isn't it? Yes. And uh, every production of this that I've seen, you have, you know, this, this great flashing of the dagger and people almost gasping as, as uh, Brutus threatens to take his own life after he's yeah. just, you know, spoken in such a patriotic way about Rome. And it's like, okay, if, if you know, I could do something so horrible to Caesar, of course, for the betterment of our country, if, if my death is needed, here's the dagger. It's very yeah. melodramatic, really. Yeah. So before we go on to your uh, Mark Antony, there are a lot of actors listening to this. They all want to know, or many of them want to know, well, so, so what? Okay, it, that's in the writing. These figures, this, this, this rhetoric is in the writing. It doesn't concern me. I'm the actor. I teach that, okay, fair enough. But the important thing is to notice and to somehow exploit that in a way that's consistent with being credible in that character. You know, it's okay not to know the name of Anaphora or whatever it is, but it's not okay to not notice the pattern and to exploit it because that's within the character. Any any thoughts on, on that and, and yeah, I, I, actor training and actors? I do think that as with punctuation generally and often coinciding with it, there are implied stage directions at least some implicit delivery directions in just the structure of the phrases. Before, when I was talking about anthropophora, which is where you ask and answer your own questions, that sets up this larger rhythm to the whole speech. And, you know, it, it seems fairly obvious that that same answer that he gives to each of those questions, if any speak, for him I have offended. It seems obvious that that would be said in a less dramatic way and also in a probably identical way at the end of each of those uh, questions. Uh, would you agree with me on that? Do you think that, that that's kind of a, 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 or is that just a custom that I, I'm recalling? Do you think that might be actually in the language that sort of implied direction? Yeah, I think so. The, the language is plainer. If any speak, for him I have offended. Uh, in contrast to the, uh, the more, uh, the lengthier, more eloquent, who is here so base that would be a bondman? And then, the brevity of the reply, the plainness of the reply, if any speak for him I have offended, the very the very brevity and, and plainness of that would seem to suggest that that's the technique. Exactly. I would certainly go along with, with that. I, kind and of. I do think the, these patterns, they, they, they can be played up or down. They can be seen or not seen. But I do think they're operative on one level or another at the beginning of that speech by Brutus that we were looking at where it's so structured and he has the repetition at the beginning and the ending of successive verbal units. Mm -hmm. It's hard not to think of delivering that in a very kind of deliberate way since the structure calls out to be made apparent. Yes, and, these are characters who are schooled in classical rhetoric. So to not exploit the rhetorical skills of the character is a mistake. Indeed time to unpack Antony's speech now. It's in verse. I make a big deal of that. It's uh, nicely contrasted somehow. It is in verse. And, you know, uh, Shakespeare is, is writing most of the time in blank verse, unrhymed iambic pentameter. And it's it's sometimes very instructive to see where he, he varies from that pattern. And, and he does vary from it in the very first line of Mark Antony's speech. 
friends is accented, and normally the first syllable of every line of blank verse is not accented, as, as in the second one could be read, I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. I've overemphasized the even-numbered syllables just so you can feel that rhythm. I yeah, come just, to bury Caesar. Yeah, the, the second praise. line is, is iambic entirely, but it's not that the first line isn't a pentameter, because it is. It's just not, not perfectly iambic. Right. One of the most noticeable aspects of Mark Antony's speech here is that he gradually introduces irony. At first, when he talks about the noble Brutus, we think that he's being genuine or, or at least polite. By the end of the speech, it's a rallying call to basically mm-hmm. you know, chase down and crucify the evil Brutus and his gang. Mm-hmm. And he accomplishes this by just this gradually inserting additional information that contradicts the idea that Brutus had good motives or that Caesar deserved what he got. And so the more we get that layered on in terms of facts that he brings forward, the more and more hollow it rings to say that Caesar was ambitious or that Brutus was an honorable man. And so this is really an actor's heyday because it's, you know, at what point do you read it straight as, you know, trying to actually say what you mean here, and Brutus was honorable. And obviously at the end of the the speech, you're going to pretty much throw it in the teeth of of Brutus. But along the way, you know, it's very much an actor's question to to know um, what degree of of irony to give those lines. Yes, yes. Because he's got his own safety to think of. You know, he's here by permission of Brutus in a sense, isn't he? Yes, yeah. And I think that's quite obvious at the beginning that he has been given a very clear mandate Sure, you can talk about uh, Caesar and, and, you know, praise the good things that he did, but don't do anything to call attention to us conspirators. And that was basically the, the mandate given him by Brutus, and he accepts that and plays within that and obviously completely overturns that and, and does end up turning it into less of a funeral oration and more of a condemnation, a more judicial oratory that, that condemns the conspirators. So along the way, Mark Antony... Uh, like Brutus before him, is able to use some good rhetorical questions. At one point, he says, you know, um, Caesar brought home all these captives, and that that brought a lot of money into the general coffers of the society. And and so then he asks, did this in Caesar seem ambitious? And he doesn't answer that. He just leaves it hanging. He allows the, the crowd to scratch their heads and say, well, gee, that doesn't seem like an example of ambition when it's something that's trying to help out everyone in general. A little seed of doubt planted here. Indeed. And then he gives another example. One that the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept. <laughs> ambition should be made of sterner stuff. And you can imagine the crowd assenting this. It's like, well, we know what ambition is, but that sounds actually a matter of humility and compassion. That doesn't sound like ambition. And then, of course, Anthony comes in with that catchphrase, yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honorable man. So on he goes with that in a kind of gradual escalation until it's 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 very clear what he thinks of Brutus, although he never directly condemns Brutus. Close to the end of that speech, he uh, makes this expostulation, O judgment, thou art fled to brutish beasts, and men have lost their reason. Now, these guys loved puns. They loved playing on words. And it would not be lost on the crowd that brutish beasts was mm-hmm. very much referring to Brutus himself. Yes, nice, yes. 
this expostulation, as I called it, where he says, oh, judgment. Uh, this is actually, a, the, the technical term for this is apostrophe, not, not like the punctuation mark, but apostrophe literally means uh, turning to another audience. So, and, and so here he's, he's turning to a kind of abstract, an abstraction judgment. And this is combined with an appeal through pathos, through emotion. When do you turn to a, an alternate audience, especially some kind of abstract thing? You know, you start with the word, oh, oh, judgment. I mean, obviously he's, he's showing that he is being overcome with emotion. Oh, judgment, thou art fled to brutish beasts and men have lost their reason. Now, what I love is this, these last couple of lines here, how he, how he just finishes this off. Bear with me. My heart is in the coffin there with Caesar and I must pause till it come back. Do you know there's actually this, it, it is taught as a general strategy. It's called apasiopesis and it literally means to pause as though one is overcome with emotion. <laughs> oh, how nice to have have that term to, yeah. to, to impress one's friends at dinner parties. <laughs> oh, and how wicked to be aware of it as a strategy, you know, uh, you know, with you, I could in the middle of talking to you, I could just a minute. I could pause as though I were overcome with emotion. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, aren't we wicked in our skill? Okay. Yeah. Any more rhetorical treasure to mine from this speech before we draw things to a close? No, I think that's good. That's very much enjoyable to go through that. I wanted to add one thing. Both the uh, pronunciation of the day, the OP, the original pronunciation, plus mm. the dictates of scansion require that ambitious, uh, a three-syllable word for us, is sometimes three, and but sometimes four, ambitious. You can use ambitious both to satisfy the dictates of, of uh, scansion but also you can you can give it an extra zing when you're being ironic. Uh, ambition, three syllables. Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Be dumb, be dumb, be dumb, be dumb. Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious. You can uh, use those different kinds of uh, three syllable or four syllable terms to. Oh, that's that's excellent. Thanks for calling attention to that. That's true. If you wanted to have the full set of you know ten syllables for mm -hmm. iambic pentameter in that particular line, yeah. uh, you need ambitious to be four syllables. Yeah. Ambitious. And a little and a few lines later, which he did thrice refuse was this ambition, rather than the lame unstressful ambition, ambition, yeah. ending on the strong masculine. Oh, see, that's a very good case for for scansion and for being able to feel out the the meter as uh, again one of those strategies of maybe implied directions for the actor. Yeah, yeah. You talked about rhetoric not simply being ornamental or window dressing. So, so the exercise in scansion and of meter isn't entirely an academic thing. It actually is actable. Oh, absolutely. I yeah. completely agree. Great, thank you for that. Let's talk briefly before we close on on the on the tension between form and content. Uh, I think that's logos lexis opposition in classical rhetoric, right? Yes. Am I right? Yes. Uh -huh. So we know that rhetoric's aim is to be persuasive, memorable, vivid. But my question is this: Is there room in the tent for truth? Well, yes, the that certainly is the case, and I think when we talk about adorning the language or beefing up the rhetoric somehow 
we are operating on this assumption that there's this level of truth and then somehow you're putting something superficial on top of it maybe to get the medicine to go down or, or to have some sort of an, an emotional payoff or attention grabbing or what have you Th those things can happen and that can be true but i think what it comes back to is actually a basic understanding of the inseparableness of form from content we can separate them in a kind of academic way to study them, but we can't ever actually divorce ourselves from form. And that means we can't ever completely have something be a rhetorical. And that is because we're constantly dealing with form, even if we're just talking about the, the common ways in which words are sounded out or their, their rhythm or any of the structures of verse or structures of trauma that we're used to, that all of that is form. This kind of a fantasy to think as though you could separate all of that out and just have the kind of underlying truth that's unvarnished, that's untouched by any rhetoric. <laughs> you show me the plainest of all statements in the world, and I can show you how that is completely a product of all kinds of layers of form that are going into that. Yeah, exactly. So on that note, close with your advice to actors, writers, politicians, preachers, anyone who wants to write or speak more vividly, memorably, persuasively, how... How should they study rhetoric to achieve that goal? Well, I, this might surprise you, but I wouldn't say uh, go to my rhetoric website and learn about all these interesting figures of speech. Instead, I would say, I mean, by all means, look at the website if it helps you great. But what I would really say is slow down and relish good expression and, you know, say it aloud, memorize great passages and, you know, become more intimately acquainted with the rhetorical, emotional contours of whatever piece of speaking or, or language that you've, you've grabbed hold on. I think that goes further than anything else. It's tapping into the kind of the primal vivacity of language and everything else on top of that is, is just academic. Thanks, Gideon. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Gideon Burton. To learn more about him and for that free extra content, especially the text of the two Shakespeare speeches he and I discussed, go to paulmeyer.com, choose In a Manner of Speaking from the Other Services tab on the menu bar, and click on episode number 58. A reminder to visit Gideon's website, Silver Rhetorici, The Forest of Rhetoric, at rhetoric.byu.edu. And if you want a copy of my ebook, Voicing Shakespeare, it has a chapter on rhetoric. Go to paulmeyer.com and choose that title from the Other Products tab on the menu bar. My guests next month are Enrique Pardo and Linda Wise, directors of Pan Theatre, or is that Pan Theatre, in Paris and Malheurague in the south of France, who continue the work begun by the late great Roy Hart in Mythic Theatre exploring the limits of the human voice. If you listen to my podcast, Pitch, number 48, with Jeremy Fisher and Julianne Kayes, you'll remember I played a recording of Roy Hart's. He demonstrates the human voice, his own, scaling an unbelievable six and a half octaves. So join me with Enrique and Linda next time on In a Manner of Speaking.